Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that is PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today, on the auspicious event of our 100th episode, we are thrilled to be joined by U.S. Senator Tim Kaine. Senator Kaine is in the midst of his second six-year term in the U.S. Senate. He is an attorney by training who was the Democratic nominee for vice president in 2016, a former governor and lieutenant governor of Virginia, a past chairman of the Democratic National Committee, a former mayor of the city of Richmond, and perhaps most importantly, I suspect our guest would say, a happily married father of three. Today, we'll chat about efforts to pass additional COVID-19 relief package in Congress, healthcare policy, and much more. But before we get into that, welcome to the program, Senator Kaine. Julian, it's great to be your 100th guest. I'm glad to, glad to be on with you today. Well, we appreciate you uh, making the time for us, sir. So I want to start um, our conversation by asking about your personal experience with COVID. Last spring, you shared that you and your wife, First Lady Ann Holton, tested positive for COVID antibodies, indicating that you previously had the virus. I know you dealt with a bout of the flu and perhaps attributed your illness at that time to that and allergies, but what can you share about your personal experience with the virus and the after-the-fact realization that you had contracted it? Well, Julian, it was very odd. So um, I had my whole staff start to telecommute um, on March 11 because there was starting to be some spread of COVID within the Capitol. Amy Klobuchar's husband had COVID. Rand Paul had COVID. Some staffers did. I had been diagnosed with flu in February, and so I'd had some flu symptoms that were lingering. But in late March, I all of a sudden got hit with a, like a blizzard of severe allergic reactions, uh, pink eye, skin rashes that would pop up on one part of my body and then go away and then pop up somewhere else. There was really heavy pollen then, and I I sort of assumed it might have been just a reaction to an unusually heavy pollen season. I didn't have the traditional symptoms, respiratory problems or fatigue. But then when I went home to Richmond after we passed the CARES Act, and Ann and I were essentially just at home, the two of us, she then got COVID for me, and she had very traditional, the very traditional symptoms. So we talked to our doctors, and at that time they said, look, it's almost... 100% that you guys have COVID, but we're not even going to test you because if we tested you, the testing was still pretty short. If we test you for COVID and you do have COVID, we'll tell you to do what you're doing right now. You're quarantining together at home. So let us know if it gets worse. By mid-April, our symptoms were mostly gone, but uh, we did get antibody testing. My wife at the time was president of George Mason University. They were developing an antibody test in a, in a big NIH research project. They needed test subjects, and we tested and both had significant antibodies. The good news is both of our cases were mild. The good news for my wife is she had no lingering after effects after mid-April. The quirky news for me, it's not bad news, it's just quirky, and it shows how challenging the virus is, is I've continued to have little neurological issues basically since mid-April, which is a nerve endings tingling 24-7 all over my body, which was one of the symptoms that kicked in in March that hasn't gone away. And it's not painful. It's not debilitating. doesn't stop me from working. It's just very notable. And uh, instead of the skin rashes that appear and then go away, I have this sort of heating pad phenomenon where it'll feel like somebody put a heating pad on a part of my body and turned it on for about 15 minutes, then it turns off. And then later in the day, it'll happen somewhere else. And I've had that also since... uh, you know, since I uh, basically mid-April. But again, the good news is compared to some of the long-haul symptoms that others report, especially fatigue and respiratory problems, I've got plenty of energy. I've been doing a lot of exercise. It doesn't stop me at work. But it just shows that 
this is a very unusual virus. Clearly what's happened is it's probably affected some part of like my hypothalamus or something that that interprets sensory input uh, has been affected by it. And so um, I have great respect for it. Um, I'm very careful um, about it, even though I've had COVID and now I've been vaccinated. I still wear a mask. I do the social distancing, worry about washing hands. And I sure encourage everybody listening to this. I'm sure if you're listening to a VHHA podcast, you're taking it seriously. But if you know anybody who isn't, please tell them to. Absolutely. That's great advice. And, and I really appreciate uh, your candor and sharing your personal experience and uh, and sending you best wishes that those symptoms ultimately, those neurological symptoms ultimately subside for you. Um, you mentioned the CARES Act, and that's a great um, segue to my next question. There has been a good deal of back and forth in Congress about President Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. As these things often do, there is some disagreement that's breaking along partisan lines. While polling suggests Americans broadly support additional economic relief aid, and we should note that among other things, this proposal would extend enhanced unemployment benefits and direct $1,400 payments to income-eligible Virginians. There are some critics who question the fiscal impact of such a package on the deficit and others who say the bill is larded with items unrelated to COVID. So, Senator Kane, I would ask you, what is your argument to both Virginians uh, and the American people about why this package should win congressional approval? Well, Julian, and I think this is the first of two packages. This is, this is called the emergency relief package, and then we'll likely move quickly to an economic recovery package that will be longer-term economic recovery items like infrastructure and broadband investment. But first on this emergency relief, we still have a long ways to go. We're, we're 10 million jobs down from where we were a year ago. 10 million jobs. It, it, that's just staggering. And we are passing grim milestones virtually every week now over 500,000 deaths. So we're not out of the woods yet. And while the vaccination deployment is speeding up, there's also new variants of COVID that pose some risk. So I am convinced by the economist Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, Jay Powell, the Fed director. These are not like, you know, doctrinaire Democrats. Um, Jay Powell was President Trump's appointee to head the Fed. I'm very convinced when they say the danger we have right now as a nation is going too small uh, rather than going too big. And um, you do have to worry about debt and deficit. But when people whose job it is to worry about debt and deficit say right now you should go big because that's what American families, businesses and the American economy need, I find that convincing. Now, I'm, I'm looking through the House version, as you know, as we talk, the House is about ready to pass the bill and send it to the Senate. Are there items that are extraneous or unusual? I, I have constituents who point things out to me, but then I go dig into it. I find like, well, this is, there's a, an investment in public transit. That's not unusual given that our public transit systems are necessary to keep the economy running, but they've been hit dramatically with diminished ridership in the last year and trying to keep public transit viable. You know, I'm talking to you today from D.C. D.C. doesn't work without Metro. So, uh -huh. you know, some people don't like public transit, but I don't view that as, you know, a, a pork spending. I view that as absolutely critical to, to the reopening of the economy. Um, so this first bill, the emergency relief bill, it, it's for individuals and families, the unemployed stimulus check, especially for those at the lower end of the income scale. But it's also heavy investments on the healthcare side to accelerate the vaccine deployment, to do some things that I think are very important. For example, uh, mental health resources for our uh, nurses and doctors who have just been under, you know, just a, a, an assault of illness and death for the last year. And they need to, we need to keep our healers healthy. And I, I view that as really important. That's a key priority of mine. 
I appreciate you uh, taking us through that explanation. And you alluded to vaccine distribution and deployment. And I definitely want to give you an opportunity to talk about the funding for COVID vaccine distribution that you and Senator Warner recently helped secure for Virginia, as well as a few other policy issues. But before we get into that, I do feel compelled to ask you about the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol by now. Yes. Most everyone knows about the insurrection and its fallout. For you personally, what was that experience like? What did you see and hear as you hunkered down? And what emotions? did you experience as you thought about the safety of yourself and your staff and even about your loved ones watching from afar? Julian, it was a day that I never would have imagined that I'm never going to forget and I never want to repeat. Um, in fact, even even looking at scenes of it now, I have a hard time watching it because I just don't want to repeat it. We were in the chamber. Um, some senators, in my view, foolishly were trying to tinker with the uh, Arizona uh, uh, electoral votes. You, you go through the states in or alphabetical order, and when Arizona came up, senators and House members objected. So then all the senators come into the chamber, and we're there having a debate about the Arizona result. We start to hear noise. The, the vice president is escorted out quickly. One of my Senate colleagues, Mitt Romney, bolted for a door. He had gotten a text from a staffer, but the security turned him around and sent him back in. They then barricaded us in the chambers. There's glass doors and then wooden fortified doors. And we were in the chamber barricaded for about 40 minutes. We heard it sounded like a gunshot down toward the house side of the Capitol. It was very eerie um, just because, you know, I, I never had experienced anything like this. They eventually figured out a way to get us to exit the chamber where we could then walk a long distance to another part of the Capitol complex. Um, on that walk, we could see the protesters in the building at one place. We were just a few yards from them with, with a, a group of police officers separating us from them. When we got to the other location, it had been outfitted uh, to be used to actually do the Senate's business to complete the electoral count. <clears throat> but there was sort of a group without even talking to each other. When that announcement was made, we can continue to work. Everyone said, no, get the chamber clear. We're going back into the chamber. We want to finish this business and finish it in full view of the American public. We don't want to do it in an alternate location. And so then, um, you know, in the, in the thick of COVID, I mean, probably 150 of us were packed into this room for about five hours um, while the chamber was cleared. My emotions, you know, I, I will say, they were mostly just anger. I was just furious. Mm -hmm. I was not afraid, um, but I was furious that the president preaching the big lie over and over and over again had led to this. I was furious at some of the perpetrators who were doing it, who, you know, there were people with Confederate flags or Camp Auschwitz T-shirts and others, just people who believe in hate and preach hate, and I was furious at them. But as I, I was also sad for some of the others. Everybody there wasn't, you know, a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi, but the people who were there had been bamboozled by the president. They had been fed a diet of lies for years, and especially in the last few months, and they had fallen for it. And uh, that made me extremely angry, um, extremely angry. And in the, you know, in the, in the weak sense, we've come to understand a little bit more about it. But uh, the big lie, when it gets preached by a leader with the loudest microphone in the world, it can have very, very serious effects. And I hope America is wiser. We're certainly sadder for having uh, put a person of no moral character into the most important office. But I hope we're wiser for it because uh, we've seen now how costly 
the big lie can be with seven people dead who would be alive today had the president not done what he did. Understandable. And and thank you for sharing just a few of the sights and sounds from that harrowing day and and going back and recalling it. I'm sure it's not, as you said, a a pleasant memory and and one that is saddening and and angering. So I appreciate you sharing that. Let's um, move back now to policy. We mentioned the funding that you and Senator Warner secured to support vaccine distribution in Virginia. As we all know, one of the biggest challenges in vaccinations has been that the available supply of doses hasn't kept pace with public demand. I can tell you that as of last week, Virginia hospitals had administered more than 659,000 vaccine doses and are essentially exhausting what supplies they have on hands within days of receiving allocations. There there is hope on the horizon, as you know, that the pending authorization of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is one dose rather than two doses from some of the other vaccines that are now available will bring more supply into the pipeline. With that set up, can you talk about how the funding that you and Senator Warner helped secure will enhance the current situation? Julian, it's all, it's just all about quantity and speed. So, you know, the, the governor, thank goodness our governor is a doctor, is very much on top of how to distribute the, the vaccines around Virginia. Now, I will say this, that I hear from our governor, but I also hear from the National Governors Association frustration with unevenness and and sort of random quirks geographically around the country. But but that is, I think, also driven by scarcity. So our goal, and we put about nearly $25 billion, a little bit more than that, into accelerating both vaccine and distribution, production of vaccine and distribution in the bill that we passed at the end of December. Um, And our goal is just to continue to produce more and more of the administration was talking about a million a day, million and a half a day, now two million a day. The decision has been made, thank goodness, this was really helpful in Virginia and nationally. In the two-dose vaccines, do you do you distribute all of it in first doses and then hope you'll have enough for a second doses three weeks later, or do you hold some back? With an uncertain federal partner in the last administration, states like Virginia were deciding that they probably should be prudent and hold some back, but that meant that we were not um, vaccinating enough people. Now the supply chain is producing sufficiently that states, including Virginia, can administer all the vaccine they get and they can count on getting enough for second doses. And that's really helped ramp us up. As you know, you know, in the early phases of the vaccine deployment, Virginia was, you know, in the bottom 10 in the percentage of vaccines that it had that was actually implementing, but that was because of this trying to be prudent on the second dose. Now we're in the top 15 because we've uh, we've, we've gained the confidence that the supply chain will produce second vaccine. I've been going out to some vaccination sites. Um, it was at one at the Salem Civic Center, also was at, at a smaller site, a vaccination site being run by the Roanoke Redevelopment Housing Authority. So I'm sort of seeing how it operates in real time. There were some challenges with the signups. I still hear that. Some particular challenges, frankly, with CVS not really integrating their vaccine uh, protocol into the state's protocol. But the state switched from a regional sign-up to a statewide sign-up recently. I think that's going to make it better, both in terms of the customer experience, but also it'll help the state better track what's going on. And our goal from Congress is put the dollars in to ramp up the quantity so that we can get as many Americans deployed as fast as we can. 
makes sense. And as you indicated, you know, this is really not just this pandemic has been unprecedented, but, you know, this mass vaccination rollout is really something on a scale that's never been done before. And so, you know, everyone is really feeling their way through, as you said, figuring out the best approaches, you know, whether it's for distribution or signups um, and registration, all of those things uh, in real time, even with advanced planning. Uh, this is just a massive event. And so uh, that's that's a challenge and that's just reality. It is. I will say one thank you that I'd like to give because obviously we, we love our healthcare workers, hospitals and others, but here's a thank you, the Virginia National Guard. I, I it, During the pandemic, I've seen the Guard uh, doing testing at senior centers around the state. I've seen the Guard at food distribution sites and food banks. And when I was at the Salem Civic Center, I saw Virginia National Guard helping with the vaccination campaign. So if you know a, a Virginia guardsman or woman, thank them because they definitely have been doing some important work. They also came and helped protect the Capitol in the aftermath of the attack on January 6th. It's mm-hmm. been a, a time where our guardsmen and women have really, really come through in a great way. Good shout out to the National Guard, Virginia National Guard. I'm sure our mutual acquaintance, Cotton Per Year, will be very happy to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Um, One more policy question. For several years running now, you have introduced legislation to create a Medicare public option plan for families, individuals, and small businesses to access health insurance. Your Medicare X proposal is more targeted and tailored than Medicare for All, which would amount to a pretty wide-scale overhaul of health insurance as we know it by moving many people into government coverage. Here in Virginia, as you know, sir, the hospital community has been a champion for increasing coverage access and is solely funding, as an example of that, the state share of Medicaid expansion costs. That said, one of the challenges for providers under your proposal would be reimbursement issues. So as you think through your proposal, um, which you filed several years now, would you consider amendments as part of a more comprehensive package that could expand access while at the same time addressing some of the reimbursement issues and other concerns that could help providers offset accepting more patients at Medicare rates, whether that's restoring dish cuts, additional funding for rural hospitals uh, and other high Medicare, Medicaid facilities, or even administrative simplification to generate cost savings. Julian, absolutely. So just for, for listeners, Michael Bennett of Colorado and I have developed a plan a few years ago that is probably the closest thing to what President Biden campaigned on. So we introduced it first in 2017 called Medicare X, basically buying a an insurance policy on the exchange. So right now you have Medicare parts A, B, C, and D, and Medicare is traditionally a program for seniors. This would be a new insurance policy that CMS would develop, would make available on the exchange for individuals or small businesses. And because CMS doesn't need to collect a profit, return to shareholders, pay fancy salaries, advertise on easy news, pay local, state, federal taxes, the premium on this plan would be very reasonable. And if you qualify for an Obamacare tax credit subsidy, you could bring the reasonable premium down even lower. And we put it on the exchange and you could buy it if you wanted. Now, you're right that some hospitals are concerned because hospitals tend not to like the Medicare reimbursement rates. They like Medicare reimbursement rates better than not getting reimbursed, cherry care. They like them better than Medicaid reimbursement rates, but they don't like Medicare reimbursement rates as much as private insurance reimbursement. So that's something that we're very open to talking about. And in fact, our bill does contain one significant, I think, uh, positive for rural hospitals. We suggest that rural hospitals, because of lower volumes of patients, could get reimbursed at up to 150% of the traditional Medicare reimbursement rate. 
So they're sort of a rural hospital plus because just lower volumes in rural areas, frankly, make it harder for hospitals to operate. And so in Virginia, you've had hospitals in Patrick County and Lee County close. We think something like this enhanced reimbursement rate could could be helpful. But we're really excited about the plan. Again, we think it's very close to what President Biden wants to do. But there are other plans on the table. And my expectation as a member of the Health Committee, Health Education and Labor Pension, is as we start to move on these, a number of plans will be on the table. And we'll try to combine you know, the best elements of all of them to come up with something that will enable millions more Americans to have health insurance that's affordable. Well, increasing coverage is always a laudable goal. Um, I know you have uh, another appointment coming up, so we're going to skip right here to the end. We normally close with asking our guests a couple personal questions. Uh, I had one for you about uh, harmonica playing and, and your favorite uh, your favorite harmonica folks, but I, I don't want to uh, belabor this and hold you too long, so I'll just cut to the very final question, which is a tradition here on the podcast, and that's this. If you were stranded on a deserted island... What one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival <laughs> kit picks? Well, um, you're going you're gonna to think these, these are self-centered picks, but I assure you they're not. So the replacements are probably my favorite band, and, I, and their album, Tim, is, uh, is probably my favorite album of theirs. And okay. I'm, I have no idea why it's named Tim, because there's no songs with Tim in it or anything, but it's a spectacular album. side let's see i tell you again it, it's going to sound self-centered but citizen kane i mean it's just got everything <laughs> in it um everything in it that's all he really wanted out of life was love that's charlie's story how he lost it you see he just didn't have any to give and then the third one was book wow that's really hard i tell you the the, the um uh, there's a novel by the a Peruvian novelist, Mario Vargas Llosa, called The Real Life of Alejandro Meta. And that's one that just, I, I often put it among my favorites. And um, since I just thought of that and, and it elbowed its way over others in my mind, I'd say I'd take that one. Okay, well, some eponymous picks from Senator Tim Kaine. And with that, that is going to bring us to the close of our 100th episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are released. And we want to once again thank our special guest, U.S. Senator Tim Kaine, for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Joey, great to talk. Take care.